You may be seated. So If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, I'd like to read this passage before we get into the, ta- or in, into the message. Again, we've been on this for a couple weeks, and it makes sense why he's bringing this up at this point. Remember, Galatians is a book on, on the fact that you are saved, that you are justified by faith alone. It's because of the grace that God has bestowed to us through the sacrifice of Christ. And because it's by, 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 grace, along, by grace alone through, through faith alone, all right, because it's through faith, because it's not something we do, there would be some questions on the Galatian minds, right? Example, one of the questions might be, well, if that's true, I can live as I want after I get saved. Chapter 5, verse 13 says, again, don't, let your, don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use it as an opportunity. In other words, just because you're saved by grace through faith doesn't mean it gives you the right to live as you please. Another question might come up in their minds, well, what about the Spirit? Do I need the Spirit at all in my life? Because again, I'm saved. And so he goes into a long uh, part as far as the Spirit. No, verse 16, I need to walk in the Spirit. I need to be led by the Spirit. I need to be uh, filled by the fruits of the Spirit, verse 22. And in step with the Spirit, verse 25. See, he's answering all these questions. If, if salvation is by grace through faith, what about the Spirit? But then he ends and winds up at this point in verses 7 and 10 and just talking about, again, works. Does works have any part in the Christian life? Now, again, I, you know, they would say this, well, I understand that I can't use my liberty for the flesh, but are works even important? Is there anything that I really need to do? And, and so he's answering that in verse 6 through 10. Let him who is taught the word, excuse me, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that we also reap. There again, the works. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You got to keep doing those good works, not to keep yourself saved, but because it's a fruit of the salvation, not the source of salvation. But God expects us to be fruitful. God expects us to be doing good. That's why the, the title of the message is The Do-Gooders. We're the do-gooders. If anybody on this earth should be the do-gooders, it should be believers. And yet sometimes we're not. Sometimes actually we're afraid of it. Sometimes we walk away. In fact, sometimes we don't get involved in certain things because we don't want to look like we're part of the social gospel. I'm not saying we, we, but we big. Uh, Church Universal. Verse 10, therefore, based on all that, based on the fact that you, that, you cannot, that you cannot mock God, based on the fact that you reap what you sow, based on the fact that you should not grow weary, therefore, as we have opportunity, there's that word opportunity again, opportunity, let's not take that opportunity for, uh, for the flesh, but as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. So again, let's break this down very quickly. By the way, your outline is only good for half the message. The second half, you might want to turn over the page to the blank spot. But let's go through this very quickly. First of all, he gives a command. Don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. Don't be led astray. God is not mocked. 
So the command is don't be deceived. Don't be deceived like this thinking that somehow I can sow beans and reap tomatoes. But in this context, it's this. Don't be deceived to think that you can sow flesh and reap blessing. The principle is stated, for whatsoever man sows, that we also reap. You reap or you harvest what you sow. So that's the principle stated. You might fill in these few things. Again, that principle is a law of nature. You plant a bean, you get a bean. But not only that, he's backing it up by saying this. Because God is not mocked. Do you realize that God is not mocked? Though we are believers in Jesus Christ, though we are his children, we can't mock him. We can't turn our nose up at him, as it were. We can't fool God. Don't resist this law. It is a, it is a law. It's for certain. You can expect to reap what you sow. Now, just think about it. Do you really believe that? Think about your life this last week. Do you really believe you're going to reap what you sow? Because a lot of times we say, well, I, yeah, I believe that. And yet you look at our lives, and I say our, plural, myself included, and sometimes haven't had time for God, His Word, haven't, time, haven't had time to pray, haven't had time to seek Him. Therefore, my life is all anything but holy. You know, we get caught up in things that are inappropriate, ungodly. Our lives are moving in this direction, away from God, off the path of righteousness. You may even come in today. You may, have be, you may be here right now. And your heart isn't even prepared to take the Lord's table. See, maybe you're buying into the lie that, well, you know, I can sow this, but reap something different. So, but he says, listen, understand, God's not mocked. You have problems in your life? Maybe, not always, but maybe it's due directly because you, you, you think you can fool God. You're living a double standard. Your life is not one of integrity. You look one way this way here, but you live a different way at home. You live a different way at work. You live a different way with your friends. You will reap what you sow. And so he explains it. In ver- this principle explained, verse 8, For he who sows to the flesh will the flesh reap corruption, gradual decay, ultimately towards death. Again, I truly believe that you, once saved, always saved, eternal security. But again, a Christian can really do a lot of damage to their spiritual life. You can have a lot of decay as a believer. First John talks about the sin even unto death. Sometimes God just cuts your life short. He gives you disease. He allows you to have disease because we're not serious about following Him. But again, the second part, but he who sows to the Spirit will the Spirit reap everlasting life. Not only everlasting life now, but for eternity. As I said months or weeks ago, you know, it's like, it's like picking blueberries. You pick all these blueberries, you might get 20, 30, 40 pounds. But along the way in picking blueberries, you eat a few along the way. And I look at this life here on this earth, like eating the few blueberries. We are experiencing eternal life right now, but it's just like a few blueberries. Once you get to heaven, you get the full marriage supper of the Lamb type, as it were. The whole thing, the whole blessing. The, what is that? I, I just lost it. Um, oh, I can't even think it. What? No, no, I forget. It doesn't matter. Anyways, number four, the principle fulfilled. Don't grow weary. You get the point? He's looking like, like you're a farmer. You're planting. You're planting. You're sowing. But don't get weary. If a farmer ended up having 
uh, 50 acres of corn to plant, but, you know, halfway through he just said, you know, it's really getting hot out here, and I see there might be some rain in the, you know, coming, and I really don't want to get wet. I think I'm just going to plant 25 acres. You'd say, you're a fool. This is the time to plant. This is the time. Because if you don't, if, oh, I'm just going to wait for another month and a half, and then I'll do it. You're a fool, right? You would say you're a fool. Many of us are foolish. Why? Because we're not planting all the... Uh, we're not sowing as much as we could. And that's why he says, don't grow weary. Don't grow faint. Don't lose heart. That's what it means. Don't get exhausted. Again, as I told you, this word was used of uh, things that, that grew slack, like an unstrung bow. It can, have you lost your tension for serving God? Have you lost your, your uh, focus? <coughs> have you become useless to the kingdom? Have you become... Uh, indifferent and apathetic and exhausted and maybe dispirited and perhaps even overwhelmed and at times even paralyzed and you look around and you get frustrated with your other brothers and sisters in Christ and for whatever reason you just say, you know, maybe even become a little cynical, a little bit hurt. It's amazing what happens because it's very predictable. And then we start to play it out this lack of intensity of serving God in our marriages and in our families and the way we deal with each other and our friends and our church and stuff like that. So he says, don't grow weary. <laughs> but why? Because you're not going to get the full blessing and reap a full reward if you grow weary. Keep on. Don't, get, uh, don't, 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 don't uh, lose heart. And then we come to the last part, and that is the principle applied. Therefore, as we have opportunity, do good. The good, in fact, there's a, it's interesting, there's actually a, a definite article in front of good. The good. Do the good. And, and the word good is, there's two different words in Greek for good. This one has more to do with the intrinsic good, the, uh, the highest good. In other words, not just temporal good. It's not just talking about meeting the temporal needs. Let's, let's go for the, the good of mankind. Well, again, that includes the temporal. We're going to see that in a moment. But that's saying, listen, I'm going to work for the good of mankind. Well, what's the ultimate good? That they would understand the plan of salvation, that Jesus Christ came to this earth, and that men can be saved, women can be saved, they can be forgiven, they can be made part of God's family. The good. But it's all leading up. By the way, it's not just talking about the gospel. That word good doesn't mean just the gospel. It means everything, including the gospel, with an eye towards eternity. The idea is this. We're going to be sowing, 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 and we want to sow the right seed. You know, if, for, for the purpose of eternity, that's why we were saved. This same word good is used in Ephesians 2. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What? For good works. Right there. I mean, we, we were created from the foundation of the world to be saved, to produce good works for Jesus Christ. And he goes on and says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What, what do we mean? Walk in those good deeds, in those good works. I was saved back in 75. I think I was saved in 75. As I told you a number of times, I'm not even sure when I was saved. That's when I first realized Christ. That's when I first made a profession. I'm not sure if that was actually the point of my actual salvation. But whenever I was saved, I can say this. I know I'm saved right now. I was saved for the purpose of good deeds. 
See, I wasn't saved to have a happy marriage, though I have a great marriage. I wasn't saved to raise great kids, though I have great kids. I wasn't even saved to be in a great church, but I am in a great church. I was saved for good deeds. Now, some of those are good deeds. But you get the thing? I wasn't saved to like be blessed on this earth. I was saved to produce good works for Christ. And you are too if you're a believer. So, that we should walk in them. As you have opportunity, let us do good to all. Now let's look at, let's break this apart. He, he brings us to two categories. We should do good to all. First of all, that's the first category. And then he's going to talk about believers. We should good, do good to all. We do, by the way, there's an interesting, like, question. What do you mean, do good to all? Can you, Paul, could you give me a little bit more information on, like, what are these deeds that I'm supposed to do? He really doesn't tell us. He just said, basically, and that's why I like the title, just be do-gooders. Be do-gooders. I, uh, I was reading a book by uh, a man who has a church in the inner city of Philadelphia. And it was interesting how he defined good works, the do-good. He said this, he said, well, it means tutoring the ignorant, uh, helping to, to house the homeless, Watching out for our neighbors, helping our community. It means spiritually drawing our conversation. I would add this one. When we talk to someone, drawing our conversation to eternal things. Man, our country is going through a lot of upheaval right now. There's a lot of chaos. And you know, I catch myself because sometimes I'm talking and I only talk on a financial political. You know what? That's going to all end very soon anyways. We need to draw people's conversation to the eternal. Now, by the way, people losing a lot of everything they've earned in the last 40, 50 years is a good door to get to the eternal. But let's not stop at the temporal. That's doing good. As I talk, I've had a number of conversations recently, and sometimes I find myself remembering, I've got to get to the eternal thing. And then sometimes we stay at the political thing. No, do good to all. It's... It's praying for people. Now again, this is all the unsaved. Do good to all men. It means praying for people. It means, again, maybe even helping out in the community. It's, it's, uh, but again, on the spiritual side, it's praying. It's giving them the good news. It's, it's again, drawing them to what's really important, but not discounting. I think over my, you know, as I looked at this passage and as I thought about my life, sometimes I discount helping the homeless. Uh, doing something for the person and major need physically. That should be part of it. But we don't want to just get the social gospel, you know, do the physical and forget the spiritual. The physical should draw them to the spiritual. It's our love for them that they say, oh, uh, you're different from the world. Again, living out integrity and doing good and being kind and self-control and all the fruit of the Spirit towards everyone that's out there is doing good to all, okay? It's walking by the Spirit's power, and as someone comes across your path, you're willing to forego your agenda for God's. That's why Titus 3, and by the way, Titus is a very evangelistic book. Kind of like the theme of Titus is, how can you make an impact on an ungodly world if you want? But this is what he says in Titus, and there's a couple places. Uh, in fact, it's in Titus where God is referred to as Savior six times. Small book, three, three chapters, six times. That's important. See, it really starts showing, hey, Titus, 
or Paul is talking to Titus and saying, listen, remember, God is the Savior and we need to impact an ungodly world. But Titus 3 says this, remind them to be, quote, ready for every good work. If you want to make an impact on your community, if we want to make an impact on this world, let's be ready with every good work. Because loving concern will do more to win a person to Christ than the most carefully articulated argument. Loving concern over the articulated argument. You need the articulated argument, but it's the loving concern that gets you to that point. A lot of people don't even want to hear from us because you don't care about me. You just want to get the guilt off your shoulders and tell me about, I know, the Lord, so that you can feel okay about yourself and move on with life. Again, I'm not, I'm not putting you in that category. I know maybe at times I've been there. By the way, I know, I've watched some of you, and you are, many of you are very loving and very kind, and you go beyond. You, you're not just looking at the gospel. You care about the person. I very much appreciate your example. But we need to all be like that, right? I care about my fellow man. And and maybe in the process, physically, we help them and give them comfort and relief. Maybe for some, they get involved and they actually hold back the moral deterioration of our society. I'm glad when Christians want to be in politics, as long as they remember who their God is. Unfortunately, sometimes to be voted in, they have to make compromises with the gospel. And that's unfortunate. Sometimes as we are ministering and doing good to all men, they, they, the men, the person has a greater appreciation of the glory of God. And they see your life and you say, man, you're different. And sometimes you're even able to lead them to Christ. Do you see the point? There's a lot of reaping that even happens among those, the all. Peter says this, It's the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The idea is this, that if you do good, they're not going to have anything bad to say about you. They're not going to say, what a hypocrite. Man, he says one thing in church, I even know he's a leader, but he's a teacher, whatever, but look at him. Look at his life. Let me get real personal for a moment. It's um, not with me, but, you know, it's amazing when things happen, you hear about it. And, and I would say this, let me point to one group in this church, and that is the teens. How was your life at school? I'll tell you why. Because periodically over the years, and I've just heard it peri- uh, recently a number of times, without me asking, it just seems to come up. What is your life like at school? Because I'll tell you what, if you're living a double standard, you, you're not winning a hearing. All you're doing is created, all you're, you're creating is critics. <laughs> because they're going to criticize I mean, I've heard things such as, oh, that's so-and-so? Oh, yeah, they party like the normal... This is the thing. They say that the average Christian teen doesn't look anything different than the average un- unsaved teen. And, and that's what I hear. Oh, that person, they party. Oh, that one, she's sleeping around. Oh, oh, that one? Man, you should, you should hear her mouth when she's talking. I mean, isn't that sad? That is very, very sad. It is very sad that if they look at the Bible church and they look at what we're trying to exemplify, Jesus Christ, and they just look at you and say, you know what, you're no different. Hey, you're dating the unsaved boy, unsaved girl. What's the difference? That's what they would say. 
Again, I would ask that you would be very careful. Now, again, this applies to us as adults as well, but it's just come to my attention recently how many kids just names have... And it's like, I'm not looking for the name, but it's like, you know, they are living ungodly lives in their schools. I would much prefer you just renounce Christ. Then do as you please, right? But please don't name the name of Christ and then not live up to the standard. All of us are imperfect, I understand. But if you're not going to make a wholehearted effort to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, then don't name him. Don't name him. One of the best ways to thwart criticism of Christianity is to do good to unbelievers. And part of the doing good is live a life of integrity. Live a life of godliness, of goodness. God will put you through things, and if you respond and act differently than the unsaved, they're going to say, you're different. I want to know what what you have. Well, let's go on to the next part, because Paul says this, as you have opportunity, let us do good to all. And then he says, especially, underline that, especially to the household of faith especially to the believers, especially to my children. We have a special responsibility for other believers. You might say, why? Why does he point them out? Well, think about this. Because all believers are children of the King. We have been not brought in because of our works. We have been brought in by adoption. See, you're all, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you're forgiven and made a child of His. It wasn't because you earned it. It was because you were adopted into the family. Now, that that puts us all on equal footing. And as such, we have responsibilities for one another. We're in relationship not only with God through the sacrifice of Christ, but to each other. We have this special bond. In fact, go over to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 actually spells it out. And this again it has to do, this is just one example of doing good, but specifically to believers, believers to believers. Look at verse 34. By the way, I think the context here is actually, I think he's primarily, I think, talking about even the tribulation days, but again, this applies to all of us. The end, at the end, Matthew 25, verse 34, it says, The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Does that sound familiar? Okay. Believers from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, he, he names six acts of charity. Verse 35, I was hungry, you gave me food. In other words, feeding the hungry. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. Giving drink to the thirsty. I was stranger and you took me in. That's, that's true hospitality, showing love and kindness to a stranger. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. In other words, caring for the sick. And I was in prison and you came to me, visiting prisoners. By the way, all in the context of believers. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and, 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 and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, and inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. What he's really talking about there is true fellowship. Willing to suffer along with others. Remember Barnabas selling a piece of land, giving it so that others could be taken care of? 
In other words, the first test of our love for God is our love for His children, other brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to take this very, very serious, maybe more serious. And again, I'm not saying all. I'm saying I know many of you are very concerned. You're reaching out. But man, we need to, especially in these days where the welfare of people have been given over to the government for the last 35 years, 40 years, right? Welfare of people has not been given to the church. It's been given to the government. Whether I'm not sure if it's because we just um, didn't do our job or they just wanted it, but the reality is that. And now we're getting a point in our time where the government's going to start failing. And the question is, are we going to take up where we should have been all along and help our brethren? Again, our test for the love of God, for our love for God, is, is how we treat each other. You might want to turn back to Galatians 6. I'll be back there for the rest of the time. Again, Christians, therefore, are particularly bound to do good to one another. Every poor and distressed man has a claim on me for pity. A poor person who's, who's not even a believer. And if I can afford it, help with financial relief. But a poor Christian has a far stronger claim on my feeling, my labors, my property. He is my brother, equally entrusted with myself in the blood and the love of our Redeemer. I expect to spend an eternity with him. Do you? He is the representative of my unseen Savior. And as one man said this, and he considers everything that be he Christ, and Christ considers everything done to his poor afflicted brother as done to himself. For a Christian to be unthinking to a Christian is not only wrong, it is monstrous. I like what John Brown said. This was a guy 400 years ago. But let me say that last. For a Christian to be unthinking to a Christian is not only wrong, it's monstrous. If you, seen, if you saw our Lord and he needed a glass of water, would you just walk right by him? No. You would say, how, how unthinking, how monstrous. And yet, perhaps we don't see the same when it comes to a brother or sister in the Lord. 1 John 3 says this, We know that we have passed from death to life, in other words, salvation, because we love the brethren. This whole thing of loving the brethren is not only a selfish act, it not only shows our love for the Lord, but it's one of the greatest witnesses we have to the outside world. They have love for one another. I mean, that's what the first church, there was testimonies that even just talked about that. You know, we don't understand this whole Christian thing, Christ thing, but we do know this, that they have this unbelievable love for one another. So the question is, what's your commitment level to other believers? How do we treat each other? Is this an, an attraction to, uh, to, the, to the world towards us because of our love and kindness and gentleness and our sacrifice for one another? Again, if nothing else, I hope this message just sensitizes you to the need. And Lord, I guess it's not just about me and it's not just even about this little church. It's, it's am I ministering? And, and, and this is the first frustration. We're all limited. We have limited time and limited resources, and you have to be very careful. Where are you going to put, and how are you going to help? You can't meet the whole world's need, but if God puts someone in your life, let's make sure you do it as unto the Lord. This is not to create greater guilt. This is not to, you know, oh, I'm already tired. Now you're making me more tired. No, it's just to say, you know what, Lord, if you bring it across my path, I'm a limited person with limited resources, but I want to honor you, right? And that takes wisdom. 
By the way, sometimes you shouldn't help the person. Sometimes the best thing they need is hunger. It'll get them doing what God wants them. Remember, there is a balance here. But again, be careful when they are doing what God wants and they're still not making it. Well, let's, let me give you a conclusion, and maybe you want to flip the page, and if you want to write a couple, four thoughts on doing good. And, it's, and it's, I'm going to draw them out primarily, primarily from verse 10, that first few, ver, uh, first few words. The first is we must consistently do good because it says, as we have, or the New American says, while we have opportunity. That's the verb, as we have. It's in the present tense. And the idea is this, as we have, present tense, active. In other words, it doesn't refer to an occasional opportunity. Like, you know, if I have time, you know, if I get a chance. But the idea is a total opportunity. And he's pointing at our life, our earthly existence. The idea is this. We are to do all kinds of good to all kinds of people in all types of situations at all times. Just the idea of all. Consistently. We only have this short time. Some of you are 15 years old. And you might have on this earth another 55, 60 years. Some of you are 40, 45. You only have well, less time than that. Some of you are even you know, 65, 70. You have a short time. Okay, I don't mean that critically, right? But just let's face it. You only have a short window of time to do the rest of your sowing. Don't lose heart. And please, don't buy into the ungodly system of this world that says, you know, you deserve your retirement. That is the most ungodly thing, and I'm becoming more and more convinced that is one of the things that Satan has used more and more to get Christians not to finish strong. Again, you can retire from your company. That just gives you all the more time to serve the kingdom. Man, don't, don't lose those last five or ten years just kind of looking at the crop when you could still be planting it. So we must consistently do good because we only have a limited amount of time on this earth to serve the Lord. And then he says the word opportunity. As we have opportunity. Again, same, I'm just going to build. It, it means that we must presently do this. Not only consistently, but I want to bring it right now. Let's do it today. Let's do it in the now. Let's actually walk out of here saying, Lord, what is the good thing you want me to do? What's, Lord, how my antennas be up, and if there's an opportunity there, help me not to miss it. That word opportunity has the idea of urgency. Urgency. I.e., don't make excuse. Don't think that you can trick God, that, that God can be mocked. Again, our present time is seed time. The life to come is when we will reap if we sow now. So let's take care to really start. Let's just keep sowing. Again, I'm glad for you who can be physically retired from a... But man, just keep sowing. You might get sick. Well, I'm done now. I'm sick. I, I can't. You can pray. That can be the good thing you do. I'm going through a real hard, difficult trial. Walk in the Spirit. That's the good thing you can do. Show the world that you don't, you're not depending on the temporal. Do you remember what Ebenezer said to Jacob Marley in the Christmas Carol? He said, but it was only that you were an honest, but it was only that you were an honest man of business. And this is what he says. Business? Man, 
Sin time is my business. You remember that? Their common welfare was my business. I always like that one. Anyways, I never could do the theatrical, so I do a little bit here. But, <coughs> no, really, mankind is your business. Now, again, with the context of honoring the Lord, but you know how you want to, you want to show love to Jesus Christ? Show love to his people. But here he says, even goes beyond that, to all men. Mankind is our business. It's not about us being comfortable. It is us finishing strong. It is about us sowing along the way. So continuously, presently, number three, we, should, we must sacrificially do good. It says, let us do good. Let us, and the, and the word let us do is, uh, is the word we get work. It's work. Be active. Be diligent. Use great effort. Christianity is tiresome. And that's why in, in Corinthians 15, remember at the end of the resurrection chapter, the last verse, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Or as Corinthians says, He who sows sparingly will reap. He who sparingly, he who sows bountifully will reap. All right, so we have to remember every act we do will be honored by Christ in the end. By the way, remember Dave Wilson, he says, I repented. Remember that? He said, I repented. I... But wait a second. There's a difference between working 80, 85 hours a week and, and, and working for the kingdom. Do you see what I'm saying? We've got to get this balancing because I hear something like he says, oh, you mean you're, you're saying that I should just have my family as everything. No, you know what? God wants us to work for the kingdom. And some, you know what? This is the thing I found, that when I'm here at the church counseling someone and doing something for Christ, I'm not home with my wife. There is a balance here. But you know what? I have to make sure that we are on the same page and we're in agreement and we're working towards the same goal. So let's, let's be balanced. Working and sowing is hard work. It's sacrificial and doing good. And then finally, we must be patient. It takes time to sow. It takes time to grow. It takes time to reap. We can't be like a child who thinks we can put the seed in the ground today and by tonight we're going to harvest the lettuce. And sometimes we sow and we sow and we're not like James. James told his, his uh, hearers this, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. Persevere. Be as William Carey described himself. You remember William Carey? He, he actually translated into Indian, for the Indian people in India, 34 different languages, the Bible into 34 either dialects or parts of languages. In other words, he finished either the complete Bible or parts of the Bible in 34 different dialects. And he was asked, how did you do this? He said, I'm not a genius, I'm just a plotter. I'm just plodding along. And he did that for like 40 years. Plodding along, plodding along, planting the seeds, planting the seeds. Lord, it's your harvest. I'm not going to worry about it. By the way, I'm not going to try to manipulate the thing. I'm just going to plant the seed, plant the seed. I think of one last illustration as we go to the Lord's table about this whole sowing and reaping. It takes time. It's a story from way back from the colony of Virginia. 
And it's a man concerning uh, a man's name concerning um, Luke Short. So Luke Short, again, hundreds of years ago, colony of Virginia. And the guy was 103 years old. And as a 103-year-old man, now this is what happened. He was sitting under a hedge when he happened to remember a sermon he had once heard preached by the famous Puritan John Flavel. 103 years old. He's thinking back. Hmm, I remember that sermon. As he recalled the sermon, he asked God right then and there to forgive his sins through Jesus Christ. Short lived for three more years, and then he died. And this is what was written on his tombstone. Here lies a babe in grace, aged three years, who died according to nature, aged 106. 106 years old. But this is what the most, important, uh, most remarkable part of the story is. The sermon Short remembered had been preached by Flavel back in England 85 years earlier. He had heard it as a kid. He had heard the message as a kid. And all these years later, it finally hit. God woke him up at 103, and he received Christ from a message he had heard 85 years earlier. You know what? As a pastor, as a parent, as one who teaches the Word of God, and also as you who's seeking to raise your children and influence people, remember that the harvest doesn't come in hours. It may come in years or decades, and maybe you never see the harvest, but you see it in eternity, right? In other words, if you're patient, then you can just keep on keeping on, as it were. By the way, if you're really patient and you believe in in the fact that God does the work, then you don't manipulate I think sometimes churches and people manipulate. We've got to tell them the gospel and they've got to get saved now. And you know what happens? They have, it's a false profession. They, I've heard this statistic many times. You know, if you're going to get saved, it usually happens before age 18. 18. I think this is what happens. I think there's a lot of false professions around. I think a lot of salvations are happening among adults. Not in comparison to number, but if you start throwing out all the false professions, because we have to get it done now. We have to show that we are successful. That's sad, because now people are thinking they're going to heaven, and they're not. Be careful. You sow the seed. Hey, if they want to accept Christ, if they want to receive Christ, do it right then. But if not, just know you were successful. You planted the seed. And it might be like Luke Short, it may take years and decades and even 85 years later when the guy just, pop, I understand Christ, I need him. And under a tree, he receives Christ. Let's be careful. We're not trying to do the work of the Lord that only he can do. We sow, but he changes the heart. He changes the heart. As we come to the table, remember, he sees your heart. And I would ask that right now that you would bow your heads. Ask the Lord, Lord, am I living a life of integrity? Is there a relationship that has has gone south and and I am getting bitter, angry, whatever? Is there a sin in my life that I need to confess? Because again, the Bible says, do not come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Prepare your heart so you have a clean mind and a pure heart. And I would ask that the ushers would come forward together. Recently, I was talking to my dad. I guess we're reminiscing, but he was talking about when he was younger. I don't know how we got on the subject, but he was just referring to the fact he remembered when 
when gold, an ounce of gold was $30 an ounce. He said, and it was like that for years and years and years. Now, if you knew that it was coming a day when gold would be worth 1600 an ounce, and you knew that that beat every other investment, what would you do? You'd go and buy gold. By the way, I'm not advocating going out and buy gold or silver. What if I told you that in just a few years from now, it might be worth 6000 an ounce? You'd say, well, man, invest, invest. You know, that is exactly what the Lord's saying here. Invest, sow. And if you sow bountifully, you will reap bountifully. Again, I'm not advocating the other side as far as silver and gold. But I do know this is what Scripture says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. These are Christians. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We're all going to stand before the Lord. And if you want to have exponential growth in your investments in heaven, keep sowing and don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Don't faint. Father, again, we thank you for this reminder. At times we do grow faint. At times we get off the path. At times we forget how important it is to serve you, how important it is to walk with you. Father, help us to to get reignited with passion, not only for you, but for one another and about the kingdom. And Lord, help us to be about sowing the good deeds that you want for us, because we know someday the reward is coming. In Jesus' name, amen.